Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Rick Commons, president and head of school at Harvard Westlake. Rick is amid his seventh year in this role. I mistakenly said eighth year during our conversation. And we spoke about uh, some of the changes occurring at Harvard Westlake with regard to curriculum and teaching. Um, we spoke about Rick's upbringing in Pennsylvania and his schooling. We spoke about his career in education at Harvard Westlake and McDonough and Groton and then back to Harvard Westlake. Um, despite being at the school a number of years now, I don't know if all of us have gotten to know Rick that well in this way or know about his, his background and his upbringing and his family. And so I really enjoyed getting to know Rick in this way, hearing about some really impactful teachers and mentors in his life. And uh, it was a real privilege to sit down with him. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, this is The Supporting Cast. Supporting cast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for being here. So, first question: We uh, it's January of 2020. It's a brand new calendar year. We're in the middle of a school year. What is sort of top of mind for you with regard to Harvard Westlake and its leadership and its future with a coming year? It's hard to uh, think about the new year without thinking about the new upper school schedule. Yeah, which will be a really a watershed change for the school because when I was here as a young teacher in 1991-92, yeah. the schedule was exactly the same as it is today. And actually, when I was teaching then, Harvard-Westlake had ad adopted a schedule that Harvard School was using. and So it goes even further it back. Goes, it goes back. I, I can't really trace it before the merger, but it's been the same sequence and uh, and certainly some different classes, but the same sequence and the same timing for 30 years. And this change is not just a change in sequence. It's, uh, as anyone who's paid any attention knows, we're moving to a rotating block schedule with longer periods, which will give students and teachers an opportunity for more collaboration, more projects, more interdisciplinary work. Uh, and, and in fact, what that has engendered is among our upper school faculty who have embraced the change in ways that I really admire and appreciate because many of them have been teaching really effectively for a very long time yeah. in the schedule that we have. And, and yet, the opportunity and the responsibility of adjusting to significantly longer periods, to meeting less often, uh, all classes will meet less often but, but longer, has, has led to a rethinking of virtually every course in the upper school curriculum and a lot of curricular development work and a lot of, uh, of collaboration between departments and between teachers about how they can make their courses better. So that's exciting. And do you think, obviously, there's the challenge of teachers who've been teaching a, a similar way for a long time and now having to change and there's, we all can be uh, um, disinclined to change sometimes, but is there a belief that this could have a really positive impact for their teaching? Well, absolutely in theory, yeah. this will make us a, a more dynamic learning environment where our teachers who are so skilled and so dedicated will actually have a, 
broader and deeper canvas, if you will, in, in which to, to be the kinds of teachers they are in a very short period of time. And, and now they'll be able to do more kinds of things in a different way. And, and uh, there will be breaks between classes, which will give teachers an opportunity to spend time with students. So uh, the short answer is it should make us better. Yeah. And I think everyone believes that in theory. It's just that change is hard for all of us. Yeah. And so I, uh, again, will we'll say with gratitude to our faculty, the way in which they've embraced change, especially those who've been doing the very good work that they're doing for a very long time and have figured it out and have patterns and, and uh, you know, ways in which they fit their magic into our current schedule, for them to say, okay, I'm going to go back to where I was almost as a new teacher and figure out how to be uh, even more magical in a new way at, uh, at year 25 or 35 in my career is something that, that I wouldn't have anticipated would have happened with such enthusiasm and willingness and uh, deep professionalism. I've enjoyed that in conversations I've had with people and in faculty meetings and hearing faculty talk about this change. But in order to develop these types of courses, you need great teachers. And recruiting and retaining great teachers is a challenge. It's a challenge anywhere, but particularly you've talked a lot about the cost of living in Los Angeles and what types of challenges that creates at Harvard-Westlake. As everyone knows who lives in Los Angeles, the cost of living in LA has skyrocketed uh, over the last several decades. And I often use the example because it's very real to me that when I was teaching here in the 90s, had I been wise enough to stay rather than going away. Yeah, for which we'll get years, to. <laughs> which we can get to. Uh, it, it would have been possible for me and my colleagues on teachers' salaries in the 1990s to invest in a home somewhere close to the upper school. Yeah. Close enough that the commute distance would not be unreasonable and that the mortgage payments would be manageable. That just simply is not the case. Our, our teachers' salaries, while they have grown and while we've been uh, as, as generous and responsible to, to the need for uh, paying our dedicated teachers as, as well as we possibly can, the cost of living in L.A. Has just, has just skyrocketed and the cost of housing in L.A. has skyrocketed to the extent that it is simply not the case that somebody, even if you have a couple with two teachers' salaries working at Harvard-Westlake, can no longer afford to buy a home in reasonable commuting distance to the upper school. Forget the, the middle school entirely, because of course that uh, campus is located in the midst of one of the most expensive property areas in the country. So, but Harvard Westlake can't, there's a lot of things we can do. We can't change the housing prices in LA um, or the cost of living. What are the types of things we can do? This seems like such a major challenge as this podcast tries to uh, emphasize is that teaching is so important to everything that happens at Harbor Westlake and every other place. Well, it's the subject of our Board of Trustees retreat mm. in March. Um, it's it's a critical strategic question for us as our faculty that did uh, invest in housing and, and could manage the cost of living back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Uh, reach a period in their careers where they're considering retiring. Yeah. We need to recruit and replace them with people who can stay and become the icons that are retiring. 
And so we're thinking strategically about how we can address that. Certainly, we can address it by increasing faculty salaries at a much greater rate. Sure. And, and we have been doing everything we can for faculty and staff over the last several years uh, with, with regard to increases, annual increases, coming from fundraising, coming from uh, operations. We have worked very hard to keep our tuition in. Yeah, we're below the median we're of below, peer schools. We're in below LA. the median. It's very expensive to, to afford a full tuition at Harvard-Westlake, and that's true of all private schools. But we're below the median in L.A., and we don't want to, to have our tuition skyrocket in order to address this problem. But we think that through thoughtful fundraising and through considering what we might be able to do to help faculty afford housing closer by and, and through the possibility of considering how we can help with commutes, yeah. whether that's a, a Google bus of yeah. the kind that Silicon Valley is famous for, or, or whether there's, there's some other way in which we can address some of the issues around commuting. We're going to be working hard at that from a strategic standpoint and from a fundraising standpoint, yep. as you well know, and, and also from the standpoint of, of simple increases to salary that are, are simple to do on paper. They're not simple to afford. No. And for the last couple of years, I think it's worth noting that the rate of faculty and staff increase has been higher than the rate of tuition increase, which is a difficult thing to achieve yeah, it's, at it's, a school. It's unsustainable without an additional source of income outside of tuition. Yeah. And for us, that has come from very generous gifts from our parents and alumni who care uh, as much as anybody possibly could about yeah. the excellence of teaching at Harvard-Westlake. So let's start with, I think that, you know, you've been, this is your eighth year? This is my seventh year. Seventh year. I appreciate that because <laughs> I run into people all the time who say, well, how's the, how's the new job? This is what, your second or third year? And I say it's my seventh. Seventh year. Yeah. My apologies. That's Back okay. at Harvard Westlake. But there are still probably a lot of people who don't know a lot about Rick Commons um, himself. So I'm curious, where did you grow up, Rick? I grew up in Philadelphia. Okay. I uh, was born in Ithaca, New York. My dad was at Cornell Law School. And ah. I was born in Ithaca, but my dad is a Philadelphian. And uh, and after law school, he moved, our family moved, my mom and dad and my brother and I to Philadelphia. And uh, and I grew up there. And he's a, he was an attorney in Philadelphia? Yep, still is, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, still practicing. In what practice area? I'm curious. He, uh, he was a, a partner in a, in a Philadelphia firm and then left the partnership to start his own practice in wills and estates ah. and a little bit of real estate and what I think uh, he always referred to as a general practice. So he would often see clients that uh, that had some legal issue or another, and if he were, were not equipped to handle the problem, he would refer it out and help them to find a good lawyer. And so he he liked to think of it as a, as a general practice or a family practice, mm. although in law, when you talk about family practice, everybody thinks family law about family law, yeah. which is not exactly his area of specialty. Got it. And my brother uh, has has taken over the firm that my father started, which was my father and my mother, because when I was in high school, my mother went to law school. Really? And joined my father. Huh. So it went from being one commons to two commonses, and then my brother joined them, and so it was three commonses, the name of the firm remains just two, commons and commons. Gosh. And then my brother's wife who was a nurse practitioner, uh -huh. decided, well, maybe I'll try this law school thing, went to Temple Law School, finished first in her class, and she joined. And so wow. there are four commonses. And you're the ne'er-do-well. And I am the ne'er-do-well. He head of school. Yes, I am the educator. In a field of lawyers. <laughs> exactly. And they, so, st they still invite me to dinner. That's good. Wow. 
Um, and so what was your schooling like in, I guess, suburban Philadelphia? Or were you in the city? within the city. Within the city? Uh, a, a kind of a residential section of the city called East Falls, which mm-hmm. is uh, between Germantown and Maniunk. Uh, some, some people might know those, those areas better than East Falls. Um, and I went to a school called Penn Charter, which uh, at the time that I attended was an all-boys school. Hmm. I walked to school every day, lived around the corner from Penn Charter. And, and what grades were, was that school? K to 12. K to 12. I went K to 12. Wow. Um, independent school. And uh, it is, uh, it was not nearly as good a school as Harvard Westlake. It has since gone co-ed, which has helped huh. to make it a much better school. What was your, as someone who works with alumni who have various views on the merger, uh, what was your view when the merger took place? Were you happy? Were you Penn Charter did it gradually. Even as I was there, I graduated from high school in 1984, and even as I was there, uh, girls were coming through grade by grade by grade. Ah. And so I think uh, in 1984 when I graduated, I think girls had made it up to about the fourth or fifth grade. Ah. So it was uh, an inevitability that this was going to happen. It was coming. It was a planned year-by-year co-education progress. And and I just think that, that... Co-ed schools are more dynamic, more interesting. Um, I think that the having multiple genders in a school makes uh, makes the education uh, more nuanced, more real, um, and and has students thinking about and reckoning with uh, all the joys and challenges of of being in a world where um, gender is not just Two, but yeah, multiple. Right, as we're all learning, as we're all learning together in these last and, few years. Yeah, and and so I I think at least for me, um, the the understanding of what it is to be part of a community in a school, it's richer when it's more than one gender. Yeah, were there teachers at Penn Charter that you can recall uh, inside the classroom or outside the classroom that had? A particular effect on you or made you think about education even as a career? I don't know if you're thinking about it back then necessarily. I was not thinking about it back then. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that this would be my career. Um, and, and there were many who had profound influence on me, especially as I have never really left high school. I think about them probably more than most people think about their high school teachers yeah. because I've never really left high school. Um, but there was uh, you know, one teacher who stands out my seventh grade uh, English and homeroom teacher uh, was a guy named Steve Bonney, Mr. Bonney, mm-hmm. who was also my track coach and my soccer coach. Hmm. And I, I'm i noticing, by the way, that you were an English, eventually became an English yeah. teacher and a soccer coach, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And, and so Mr. Bonney inevitably was kind of an influence. Yeah. And he, uh, I think the most important thing that Mr. Bonney did for me and for all of his students was he knew us. He knew us yeah. really well. And when he said, when he saw me in the hallway and he said, hey there, Ricky Commons, <laughs> the way he said it made me think, this person knows me and he cares about me. Huh. And that was much more important, actually, than what he had to say about Othello or uh, about the soccer game or at halftime, you know. It, it was just much more important to me that I was known by him. That mattered to me. I'm noticing that when you describe the new schedule at the upper school, it allows for more time outside of class, 
right, either before or after class for students to get the extra help they need to spend time with teachers. I'm wondering if one effect might be more teachers really get to know their students in a in a different way. I, we hope so. Yeah, uh, I hadn't I hadn't associated that with Mr. Bonnie, but, <laughs> but you're shrewd to do so because I do think that that's what distinguishes school one good school from another. I yeah. guess I should I should put it this way: it's what distinguishes a good school from a great school. I think a great school has all that you would expect it to have in the way of academic opportunity and excellence and extracurricular opportunity and excellence. But if you can add in a layer of, not just a layer, but a, but a central heartbeat of personal connection where adolescents who are in that phase of rebelling against their parents in sometimes quiet ways, sometimes loud ways, yeah. find other adults who know them and care about them and hold them accountable in ways that they can grow from and respond to. That that makes the experience, I think, of, of students and, and a school as a whole truly great. So from there, uh, you go to the University of Virginia. University of Virginia. And yeah. what was that experience for you? It, it was, you know, like everybody, college was a time of growing up and trying to discover myself and uh, and... I, I learned that that uh, writing papers was something that I actually enjoyed. Reading hmm. books was something I enjoyed. And in high school, I just done it because my teachers told me to. Were you an English major? I was an English major in college, and and uh, and then in my senior year of college, my fourth year, as they say, at the University of Virginia, I went with a friend to a lacrosse game. Uh, I was not a lacrosse player, but he had been, and we went to his alma mater, which was 40 minutes away up the road from Charlottesville, Virginia, a boys' boarding school called Woodbury Forest School, uh -huh. and went and watched a lacrosse game with him and sat next to the head of their English department. It was the spring of my senior year in, in college, and uh, I had been interviewing at investment banks huh. because that's what people did in the late 80s. Yeah, it's a good and, time for investment banks. And most of the investment banks that I'd interviewed at were wise enough to say, you don't seem to know anything or care anything about what we're talking about, so we're not going to offer you a job. Yeah. But one had offered me a job, ah. and I was holding that offer, and I really didn't want to be on Wall Street. Hmm. And yet it was, a, it was an offer that um, many of my contemporaries thought was something you just don't turn down. Morgan Stanley was the name ah. of the bank, and uh, I was going to go be an analyst at Morgan Stanley. And Woodbury Forest School needed an English teacher and somebody to coach three sports and run a dorm. And I had been a resident advisor in college. I had loved playing intramural sports. I didn't play college sports. And, uh, and I, as I said, I discovered that I really enjoyed reading books and talking about them and writing about them. And so I interviewed for that job. They offered me that job. And you turned down Morgan Stanley. And I was so grateful to make the phone call to Morgan Stanley and to say to the person on the other end of the line who had been the recruiter that I, uh, that I was going to do something that he was going to think was crazy. I was going to go teach English at a boarding school. And, uh, and he said, I don't think you're crazy. My dad was the head of Episcopal Academy in Philadelphia. Wow. And uh, I understand completely. And best of luck to you. Wow. And that's quite a decision. Well, I mean, that's quite a turning point. I, it was a, an important turning point for me. I, I have 
always look back on that and thought I was so lucky because I don't think I would have been a very successful banker. <laughs> and many people have made wonderful careers out of it. It just wasn't for me. Understood. So how do you get from sorry, Woodbury Forest? Was Woodbury the Forest. Forest, yeah. the school in Virginia, out to Harvard-Westlake, out to California? Well, Woodbury Forest was a boys' boarding school in uh, the beautiful part of rural Virginia, but there was nothing nearby other than the University of Virginia. And I would drive down to UVA periodically and catch up with friends who were younger and still in college or friends who had gone on to law school. But after a couple of years of doing that, I really felt like I just don't think that I am meant to spend my 20s. Uh, at this at this little boarding school, and yeah. I want to try something different. And I had a college girlfriend who was living in Los Angeles ah. and uh, having a great time of it. And so I decided I would have a California adventure and drive out here and see what there was to see and learn to surf and write a novel and <laughs> and uh, and hang out with my girlfriend. And I learned to surf. Oh God, <laughs> didn't write the novel. Novel didn't happen. Relationship didn't last. You know unemployed former teacher sleeping on your couch if you're uh, a young successful actress in in Hollywood uh, she she was not all that interested in no. spending more time ah, with me that's rough yeah well, it was it was, a, it was a reckoning yeah but my father had predicted all of this you know if you'd have been an investment banker that would have been different yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my father had predicted all of this ah and uh, i'm sorry to be telling you all these details no this is great asking. here we this are this is great uh, i'm glad that there's an audience of two for this podcast <laughs> But uh, because my father had predicted all of this and said it's a terrible idea for you to leave a job where you're doing well enough, they'll yeah. employ you for another year, and to go out to uh, to California where you've you've got a a relationship from a couple of years ago when you were in college, and uh, and to go out unemployed and think you're going to write a novel, that's not a that's not a great idea. Go out yeah. with a job, and uh, and so in any case. I didn't want to prove my father right, and so I began to knock on doors of independent schools mm. in Los Angeles, and Tom Hudnut was kind enough to open the door wow. and to say... And what year was this? This was in 1990. Okay. It was in the fall of 1990, and uh, he, the merger had just been announced ah, right. and had not actually taken effect, and they were uh, facing Harvard and Westlake were facing uh, additional applications, and so they had some need of somebody to read more applications and do some interviewing and be a part of the admission office, and Tom was kind enough to give me a job in the admission office at Harvard West. Working for? Elizabeth Gregory Reardon. Right. Then Elizabeth Gregory and Debbie Reed. Wow. Who are still part of our community today. I mean, Debbie yeah. left and came back, of course, like you did. That's right. So, yeah, it's it's quite a... Quite a memory, and, and Debbie and I, uh, Debbie now serving as interim associate head, yeah, uh, which is kind of her. I I would do anything that Debbie told me to do, yeah. Uh, but to have that partnership again, and the partnership that I've enjoyed for years with Elizabeth as director of admission, and now in her role as special advancement officer, uh, and then just to add to it, additional in that office was Anne Marie Whitman. <laughs> And I work with Anne Marie Whitman. And she is your executive assistant yeah. today. Amazing. So lots of lots of connections. And so, how long did that stint last? This is your first stint at Harvard Westlake. Started in 1990. Yes. You were 
here for how many years? One. Oh, just one until you went to graduate school. Is that right? You have a good memory. Right. We're testing you. Okay. So you were one in the admission office. And I'll accelerate it. Yeah. So I was was a year in the admission office and and I was very grateful to, to... Tom and to Debbie and Elizabeth and uh, and at the end of that year I went to Stanford and did uh, a, an MAT a Master of Arts in Teaching hmm. that combined English and education and figured I would do that and then I could go back east and tell my father that uh, I did have a job for a year yeah. I got a master's degree and now I can come back with my be a lawyer and go to law school and join the business or, or whatever it might yeah. be and. Uh, and instead, uh, in the course of that year at Stanford, I, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to stay in schools. And I ended up talking again with Tom. And he asked what I hoped I might do. And I said, I hope I might teach and coach and do a little administration at, uh, at a low level and learn what that's all about. And he said, well, why don't you come back to Harvard-Westlake mm. and serve as an assistant dean? Hmm. Which was a glorified attendance taker. Okay. But it was a good education in what it means to be an administrator. And I taught two sections of 10th grade English and I coached soccer. Mm. And I did that for five more years. So I was a year here in the admission office, a year at Stanford, and then five more years here where uh, where I served in that assistant dean capacity and then became a college counselor, what we now call deans in our parlance. And during that span, was that when you kind of began to think, gosh, maybe I could be a head of school or I'm interested in school leadership in some way? And I'm curious if so, kind of who were the people that you talked to about that decision and how you might kind of gain the skills in order to realize that someday? Yeah, that was the time. I I would say that that somewhere in the midst of that five-year stint when I was back, I thought, I really like this work in independent schools. I really like this school. Yeah. I really like Harvard-Westlake. And the people that I admired especially were Tom Hudnut. Uh, I, I found myself uh, thinking often about what he said and why he said it and how he said it yeah. and the way in which he uh, created culture and inspired uh, professionalism and loyalty and uh, I was not thinking that I would ever sit where he sat. No. I just watched him and admired him and uh, and tried to learn as much as I could. Mimi Flood, who was the head of the upper school, I had much more access to Mimi yeah. than I did to Tom. And especially when I was a college counselor, I spent a lot of time with Mimi. And she was extremely generous with her time and seemed always to be here. And so a number of us would always find our, our way into Mimi's, Mimi's office. And then Debbie Reed, who was the head of the middle school at the time, was somebody I would see, uh, you know, afternoons. I was coaching ninth grade soccer. I would see Debbie's door open. She would always beckon me in. And uh, I would say Tom, Debbie, and Mimi were huge influences on me during that time when I was here. And so from there, you uh, left to go to McDonough first? Yes. Well, I finally decided uh, that I... It wasn't a decision to go back east. It was a desire to do something along the lines of what I saw Mimi and Debbie doing. I had no idea that that what Tom was doing would ever be in my future, but I thought uh, there might be opportunities to to do something outside of the college counseling realm and more in the divisional leadership realm. Broader leadership. Yes. And, uh, And an opportunity came 
at McDonough School in Baltimore, Maryland, to be the the dean of students for the upper school, and uh, it, it carried with it the associate head of upper school title, and so it was a chance to do some divisional leadership, and uh, and so I did that for a couple of years, and then the head of McDonough School, Bo Dixon, asked me to be assistant head, hmm. and that was. A wonderful opportunity, which which I was thrilled to take, and did that for a couple of years, and uh, and and then just to to bring the story to its full conclusion, Bo Dixon asked me at one point if I ever thought that I would like to succeed him as the head of McDonough School. Wow, and you'd only been there a few years. Right? I'd been there about five years. Okay, when he asked that question. Yeah. Okay, uh, and and. I said that you know that would be a, a dream come true. I couldn't imagine that ever, ever really being in my future. But if it were, that would be a dream come true. And he said, "Well, I can't promise that, and uh, and I think that it would be uh, probably a long shot for you. But you never know. So why don't you apply?" And you're in your mid thirties at was, this point, or late thirties? I was thirty-five, probably, when that conversation wow. happened. Huh. And he said, "Well, why don't you apply for?" Uh, headships, uh, you know, maybe a school or two a year, so that if and when I retire in a few years, uh, and you, you know, you don't end up with being my successor, you won't feel like you've been biding your time and, yeah. and waiting around for this job, and then and then it goes to someone else. And I said, that's a really nice offer. I'll do that. And uh, came back to him a month later, and I said, uh, Groton School in Massachusetts is looking for a head, and it seems like an interesting place, and maybe I'll. Maybe I'll apply there if you think that's a good idea. And he said, let's see if we can get you an interview. Sounds like he was an amazing mentor. He was a great mentor. And supporter. He I mean, was, he didn't have he to do any of those things. He didn't did he? have to do that. And, and he really was looking out for me. And um, and so, as you know, I uh, ended up at Groton. I applied for that job and got the interview. And then one thing led to another. And I ended up being appointed the head at, at Groton uh, after six years at McDonough. And was, the, was at Groton for 10 years. Wow. And, uh, and then just to bring it full circle, this has been a much longer story than it should have been. But uh, in my, I guess it was my eighth year, Tom called and said that he was thinking about retiring from Harvard-Westlake huh. and would I ever want to apply for his job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you've heard this story a yeah. number of different times, but I said I was flattered and loved Harvard-Westlake and would love to come back, but I was really in the midst of things at Groton and just didn't didn't see that in the cards, wasn't sure the timing was right. And Tom said, well, why don't you speak to your wife and call me back? And he hung up. <laughs> and by that time, I was married to a Harvard-Westlake alumna, right. Lindsay McNeil. And uh, of course whose family is was still here? Still here in Southern California. And she's a Southern Californian. Yeah. And, uh, and indeed, when I told her that I'd had this funny call with Tom Hudnut and that he'd said, why don't you talk to your wife and call me back and hung up on me. She said, well, that's very good. Why don't you call him back? And so I did. And that began a series of conversations. And um, and after my 10th year, I ended up staying at Groton for another year and a half. But after my 10th year, I came to Harvard-Westlake and it's been a thrill to be and back. It was, and it was the third time he had hired you, I I suppose, or it, they, yeah, it was, and yeah, he. I think he's. It's he hired me. I mean, the the board did ultimately. But sure, it was Tom who reached out and yeah, uh, and so uh, of the various important mentors I've had in my career, none is more important than Tom. 
So what about me? You, you, 10 years at Groton and now in your seventh year at Harvard Westlake, what are the parts of the job? Because I, you know, people from the outside, well, they see you at events and people want to come up and talk to you. And, uh, but what they don't see is behind the scenes when there are issues, they all, many come right to your door. When someone is upset, they often want to talk with you. There's a lot that you have to absorb as head of school, at least from what I've perceived. What are the joyful or most joyful moments of being ahead? And you can speak to moments at Groton or at Harvard West. Like, what are the things where you, where, where are the, when are the times when you say, wow, I, I love this? I love it when I get to be around students who are engaged in what they're doing, uh, engaging to talk with, uh, accomplishing amazing things, uh, whether it's last Friday night standing at the uh, Harvard-Westlake Alamany boys basketball game and watching our, our boys team play defense uh, at such a high level. And, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this to you earlier this morning, yeah. but it's, it struck me and various others. When we were ahead, I think the score was 25 to 6, and Alamany was, was having trouble scoring, and we were scoring at will and were, were uh, really dominating the game. And Mason Hooks was pulled out of the game and, and uh, given a break by Coach Rubibo, and uh, that was partly because uh, I think we were dominating the game, and so Mason didn't need to be there. And Mason came out and stood in front of the bench and, and looked at his teammates and said, don't let them score. And I looked up at the scoreboard, and we were winning 25 <laughs> to 6, and the intensity with which he was uh, ferociously addressing his teammates and and uh, and the the defense that this team was trying to play, you know, it was just, it was inspiring to watch. And, and, uh, and Alamany came back and I'm glad to say it was a closer game in the end than uh, we won the game, but it was closer than the initial score would have predicted. But I loved seeing that intensity and that excellence and that pursuit of excellence and, and having a chance to, to chat with Mason or other members of that team at lunch uh, the next day, you know, that's the kind of thing where I just, I just love it. I will say the other thing that I love is the team that I'm a part of yeah. and the people that I get to work with. And you're right that a lot of uh, difficult, complex, thorny issues end up at my door. Yeah. But I can always call somebody in the office who is going to know more than I know and be better than I can be at at figuring out how we're going to address this, whether that's Debbie Reed from across the hall or Laura Ross yeah. from down the steps or John Wimbish from over at the middle school or Terry Barnum from the athletics office or Eli Goldsmith from the advancement office. The team of people with, with whom I work on a daily basis is the strongest team I can imagine. It's stronger than any team I've seen anywhere else. And, uh, and we all really enjoy working with each other and enjoy solving problems together. And that means that even the hard moments are moments that, that can be satisfying because we work on solutions together. And, and I think the strength of the school comes from, well, it comes from the teachers and it comes from the students. But to the extent that I can contribute to the strength of the yeah. school, it comes from working with a team of of really dedicated, really smart, really team-oriented people. And I love that. Yeah. 
So I wanted to uh, kind of finish with a few kind of get to know you questions. I'm going to do this with each guest and kind of they'll revolve around kind of Los Angeles. Los Angeles is known for, um, and they're just three of them, don't worry, are uh, known for sort of the film industry. It's known for great food. It's known for great climate. Oh, you know. First question. I can talk about the climate. <laughs> don't ask me about food and, and movies. I'll try. It's, it's, they're easy ones. Okay. What's your favorite movie? What's the one movie you kind of can go back to or it comes up on cable and you, you always want to watch it all the way through? What would you say? Well, I've been I've been watching Frozen and Frozen 2 over and over again lately because my daughter Clara is excited about okay. Elsa and, and Frozen. Uh, <laughs> they, they're, not, they're not my favorites. Um, I, like a lot of people, the, the film Life is Beautiful struck ah. me the first time I saw it, uh -huh. and, uh, and I've seen it a couple of times since, not over and over again, but uh, but I love that one. I made my children watch uh, Princess Bride with me oh. recently, and they, about 10 minutes into the movie, were adamant that I was ruining the movie by saying all the lines either simultaneously <laughs> or ahead of the, the characters in the movie, but, but I love that movie, and so I... I was able to watch that with my kids as long as I kept my mouth shut. So I'll give you those two. Those are Life good ones. Beautiful and, and the princess. Those Bride. are great ones. Okay. Favorite meal in Los Angeles, yeah. or, or it could just be a favorite food. Well, it could be like if you, you know, you know, it's a, it's it's a, it's the right answer. It's just gonna it's just gonna you know, the, the audience of two that's listening to this podcast. <laughs> say, oh. But I like the cafeteria at the upper school because. The cafeteria at the middle school, I like the cafeteria at the middle school too, but the students in the middle school are a little bit afraid of me when I sit down with them. Yeah. And so I, I don't, <laughs> or they find me to be ridiculous. Maybe that's more what it is, but but I don't get a chance to, to actually get into a great conversation that I hadn't expected at the middle school as often as I do at the upper school. So I walk out of the cafeteria at the upper school and, and Firo has given me a great smile and asked me how my weekend is. I have a plate of, of, of good food that's going to taste good and it's going to be healthy. And then I walk out and I look for a place to sit down and sometimes some students will, will beckon me over. More often I ask sheepishly, can I join you? And they say, of course. And I have the most fascinating conversation that I didn't expect to have that day. So that's my favorite meal wow. is lunch really? at the upper school. I mean, cafeteria. I believe you that the experience of that meal might be nice, but I don't know if you're getting the credibility of the audience that the food quality of that lunch. No offense to our wonderful dining staff, but well, no, yeah, I, I think I think the food's very good. Yeah, um, I I'm not the most discerning. I don't have the most discerning palate. Got it. Uh, and so the fact that uh, th that there isn't as much variety as there might be if you were to wander up and down Ventura Boulevard and stop into 15 different yeah. eateries, that's okay with me. I'm I'm happy with rice and chicken salad and 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 a great smile from Firo. Got it. And favorite place in LA? Favorite location? Is there a place you could say the Quad Harbor Westlake, but is there a <laughs> a beach or a mountaintop or a area part of town that you love? I love the Santa Monica Mountains. I love hiking up in the Santa Monica yeah. Mountains. I, I just I can't believe it when I when I motivate my myself to get up there how quickly you can get away from the hustle and bustle of LA and and be in dramatic 
mountain scenery with a view everywhere. You know, on the East Coast, there are trees you can't see unless you come to a clearing and then you get a glimpse and then you hike along and you're in the trees again. Yeah. And in the Santa Monica Mountains, you see the whole time, whether it's looking at the ocean or looking at the mountains or looking at the sky. So I would say that the, the hills up above Santa Monica. That's a good answer. All right. Last question. Yes, sir. I am the uh, parent of a one-year-old daughter. What is the best parenting advice you have, either that you've received from others or that you have to impart as an original? The best parenting advice that I have heard comes from Beth Slattery. Hmm. Who is our uh, upper school dean and about to become the head of the upper school. Exactly. And Beth Slattery will tell parents like me and parents like all of us when we go through the thorny college process and parents of one-year-olds yeah. that as you're dreaming about all those things that you want for your child, it is very easy to dream your dreams hmm. and to think about what your child will be according to what you hope and what she says that I try to remember and I'm not so good at remembering it all the time and my children would, would be happier and, and, and better adjusted if I could just remember it more often and that is to love the child you have hmm. not the child and she doesn't add this codicil but what she means is not the child you've imagined she will become but to love the child you have hmm. and I think if we can do that as parents our kids will be will be the better for it Rick Commons thank you so much for taking the time. I think this will be the first uh, episode of Supporting Cast that will be available for folks to listen to. I appreciate you being the first. Um, well, thank you for your kind questions and and your uh, either feigned or sincere interest. In a long <laughs> I think it's sincere. History, I, don't, I don't think I'm the only one. A long history of, of what brought me here, took me away, and brought me back. But you've been patient, and I appreciate it. Thank well, you. thank you. And this has been uh, the Supporting Cast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.